It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're ready for action with General Jack Keane. He's coming up in 15 minutes talking about what President Biden should be looking to do and accomplishing on his first overseas trip, including meeting with Vladimir Putin at the end of next at the beginning of next week. And Wilford Riley will be with us. He's a professor of political science at Kentucky State University, a deep thinker, and author of Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax as well. Uh, so we'll talk about those things, and uh, we'll track what the president has taken off on Air Force One, a Marine One to Air Force One. He's going to be heading over to England. Uh, then he goes to, uh, to Brussels, and then he's going to head to Vienna. So here we go. Uh, let's see how he does overseas. It's got to be better than his vice president just did in Guatemala and Mexico. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I am extremely disappointed because we offered the president basically what he asked us to do the first time we met with him, which was a trillion dollars over eight years, including baseline spending, and that it wouldn't include a tax increase. And uh, he, those were our, that was our red line. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the West Virginia Center, Shelly Moore Capito, is out. Joe Capito, sorry, we're just not into you with that in, that into you anymore. That's the sudden change of heart from President Biden as he decides the other group of bipartisan legislators working on an infrastructure package might be closer to his liking. Senator Capito's effort to, comp- uh, to compromise on a massive spending bill just flat out collapsed. Did Republicans undermine themselves? Number two. Today I am resigning from a job that I love. I became an English teacher at Dwight Englewood School seven years ago. But over the past few years, the school has embraced an ideology that requires students to see themselves not as individuals, but as representatives of either an oppressor or oppressed group. Dana Stagel Plow, a teacher resigning from a New Jersey school because of critical race theory. She has had it. She is fed up like so many of you. Teachers are quitting. Parents are uniting. And former President, uh, former President Obama mocks. A pitch battle Republicans and Patriots seem to be winning as the left even tries to cancel apple pie, I'll explain. Number one. Can you commit right now that you will indeed visit the U.S.-Mexico border and will you do it soon? Jeremy, let me tell you something. Yes, I will. And I have before. Yes, uh, that was a CNN reporter out of her league. That's how uncertain VP Harris looked over the course of three days on our first foreign trip. Unprepared, disinterested in anything but a problem solver. That's how I assess her attempt to go to the root of the border crisis. Her words, what say you? Uh, the root of the border crisis is really pre- at the White House. It's 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Why else when you do forget remain in Mexico? Uh, can you say if you come here as an unaccompanied minor, you get to stay? When you say my focus is reuniting families, uh, when you say you're not going to deport, they had an immediate end to deportations. And when you go into disempower ICE, what do you expect the results to be? Then you turn around and give your vice presidents the power to attack this issue. She refuses to go to the border. She waits 75 days to make any trip, did a couple of Zoom calls, shows up in Guatemala. The previous day, the president of Guatemala says the problem is the sense 
from the Biden administration that they're going and the actually credo that they will, re, re, will reunite families. He said coyotes lined up in Guatemala. I could not stop them. And we don't prosecute them. And Kamala Harris won't even go to the border. She's unprepared to answer that question, even from a friendly reporter. Cut one. Can you commit right now that you will indeed visit the U.S.-Mexico border and will you do it soon? Jeremy, let me tell you something. Yes, I will. And I have before. Listen, anybody, especially if you're from California, you know, I've spent a lot of time on the border and it, both going there physically and aware of the issues. Uh, but the reality of it is that we need to prioritize what's happening at the border, and we have to prioritize why people are going to the border. Evidently, there's a report out of CNN that the White House was perplexed by our visit and her comments. There was over 100 countries had citizens cross into our country. She visits one after 75 days, and she acts like we're getting to the root of the problem. El Salvador, Honduras, Venezuela, uh, Brazil, Romania, uh, uh, Costa Rica, uh, the Haiti. These are all set of people that have left their countries, their islands, and come through our southern border. Maybe they were going to apply for citizenship or for a visa or a green card, but they say, well, it's so easy to get through now, and we're not getting deported, and ICE has no power, so why bother? So she does a two-stop tour, and she pledges millions of dollars in U.S. loans and investment for housing and agriculture to Mexico and northern Guatemala, $130 million for improving working conditions in Mexico, including addressing safety issues in child labor. I don't know. Could we use that money here? What did they do to deserve this money except for crash our country? Disaster. Disaster. Cut three. The reality is that most people, when they leave, they don't want to leave and most want to go back. So that is the spirit with which we approach these issues. Okay. So I, she's just assuming that there are no criminals in their midst? Is she talking about the 170,000 that we capture or turn themselves in every month for the last five months? Or are you talking about some of the drug runners that are putting fentanyl into our country at a dizzying rate that's furthering the heroin crisis in our nation? Are you saying that they just want to come to another country? They just want to see our country? They don't want to leave? There's just no opportunities? I mean, we have American citizens. We should prioritize them. Joe Biden prioritized American citizens when it came to the vaccine. What about when it comes to social welfare? What about when it comes to schools? What about when it comes to Social Security? What about when it comes to health insurance? Shouldn't we have a priority there? And shouldn't we be the priority? Nikki Haley knows the problems, knows the nations. Cut 11. This is embarrassing. I don't know what the problem is. Clearly, she's fearful, but... Kamala Harris was given one job, one job, and that was to deal with the border. And any leader knows you can't fix what you can't see. She hasn't been on the ground. She hasn't talked to Border Patrol. She doesn't know what is happening there. This is the same woman that literally tweeted out, um, come one, come all, we're open for everyone. I mean, all you have to do is look at that. And so now she's going to say, do not come. You know what says do not come? When you show up at the border and you really have actions speak louder than words. I don't know what her fear is of the border, but clearly she has one. And I don't know what Biden's fear of the border is, but he has one. What I will call it is flat out denial. They will, think that if they don't go, it won't be real. It's very real. I have another thing to Nikki Haley's hypothesis. 
I believe that they don't think they can win, and if they go down there, it's the pottery barn in reverse. If you broke it, you got you bought it. If you show up, you own it. And if she shows up and she was able to see the border gaps and people come through and some six-year-old run up to her and grab her leg and go into a soft-sided facility, Americans call them tents, and see 17, some of the 17,000 kids that are in our custody, whether at their military base or some type of uh, lean-to or gym across our country, she's going to realize and get questions about the policies that led to this. So if she doesn't show up, if she flows or flies over, it won't happen. If Joe Biden goes overseas, it won't be a big deal. It's not going away. You saw the mayoral race in uh, Rio Grande Valley in that area, a big border area, just went to a Republican first time in about four decades since I think Warren Harding was president. That's significant. And don't let anyone kid you. They're up eight points in Hispanic vote who like the Republican Party all of a sudden. Other big story, and I don't want to take too much away from the great General Jack Keane. But yesterday afternoon, Senator Shelley Moore Capito got a call from Joe Biden. The infrastructure talks were off, even though he dropped a trillion and they went up 400 billion. Cut 33. The president ended the talks today with me on a very cordial call. I am extremely disappointed because we offered the president basically what he asked us to do the first time we met with him, which was a trillion dollars over eight years, including baseline spending, and that it wouldn't include a tax increase. And uh, he, those were our, that was our red line, not his. And the last offer that I got from the president had four tax increases in it, and it also uh, was much closer uh, in in numbers than what the what the White House is putting out right now. So I'm disappointed with that. So she's uh, done, even though that she hit on all levels. And she was talking to Brett Baer last night when it happened. And she said, you know, I had an agreement with the president, but somehow his staff gets in the way. And we'll play that cut a little bit later. But what it means is, and it's not over yet, Joe Biden picked up the phone and talked to Kristen Sinema, the senator from Arizona, the Republican senator from Louisiana, Bill Cassidy, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and said, keep on working in a bipartisan way, which is what they're doing. But I don't know if it was intentional or not, but they totally undermined Shelley, uh, Senator Capito because she's negotiating, but he thinks he's got a better deal with this so-called bipartisan committee that consists of Romney, Portman, Cassidy, Murkowski, Manchin, Sinema, and Tester, and problem, members of the Problem Solver Committee over in the House, Republicans and Democrats. And he says, wait a second, they're already up to $900 billion. I kind of like what they're doing. Uh, Biden originally wanted $2 billion to spend on infrastructure, $2 trillion, I should say, but is now on course to get less than half that amount. This group is doing some things. It's got Joe Biden more enthused. So he, so he leaves Capitol and goes to Cassidy. I don't know. Come on, Republicans, get your act together. Let somebody negotiate. If I was me, I'd be so upset if I'm Senator Capito. Really? My own party's negotiating against me. Thanks. Appreciate it. Why doesn't Mitch McConnell get a hold of that caucus? I like the fact that they're dealing together, but pull Senator Capito back and say, join me here. I think we got a better shot. Joe Manchin, excuse me, Joe Manchin is now dealing uh, with uh, Joe Biden, so I don't think uh, he is that upset with Joe Manchin for blowing up H.R. 1 as well as infrastructure. He says, I will not vote for it. All right, when we come back, General Jack Keane on what the president should be looking to accomplish in Vienna, uh, in Brussels, and when he goes to the U.K. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. A radio show of the people for the people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. We do not regard a meeting with the Russian president as a reward. Joe Biden is not meeting with Vladimir Putin despite our country's differences. He's meeting with him because of our country's differences. Is it a good move? That's Jake Sullivan, the White House National Security Advisor. It'll be next week in Vienna, but the President of the United States is en route right now to the U.K. He's going to meet with the Queen, Boris Johnson. Then, of course, he's going to go over to Brussels, meet with the G7, and then he's going to go meet uh, in his first overseas trip with Vladimir Putin. How will it go? What should the objectives be? General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, joins us now. Uh, general, are you for this meeting? Well, I thought the meeting would have been better served if we did it later in the year or next year after we were really able to arm wrestle these difficult and challenging issues at the staff level and then prepare, you know, the the two presidents to, to meet based on some substance and a pathway ahead. I mean, this photo op type of meetings, which, you know, President Trump did a lot of himself, I don't seem to get us much, uh, much return. But certainly any time these two leaders meet, it's, it's it's more of a good thing than a bad thing, in, in my judgment. Uh, certainly there are ma- major issues here. Um, they know each other well, so it's it, it's not one of those uh, that President Trump had to go through as someone new on the world stage. And, and there's a history uh, between the two. Here's my concern is I think Putin operates uh, – with a significant amount of leverage over Republican and Democratic presidents throughout his 20-year tenure with some degree of success in leveraging them. And I believe he probably puts President Biden in the category of President Obama, who he had a significant amount of leverage over, Brian. Uh, I think he, frankly, was inside his head a little bit because uh, President Obama seemed to be paralyzed by the fear of adverse consequences when uh, he was unwilling to push back on Putin and confront him with policy as opposed to rhetoric. That's the issue I have here. I think we'll get pushback on Putin from Biden in terms of rhetoric at the meeting and, and at the press conference after it. But 
I'm really going to check and see what are the policy, public policy formulations that come out of this right. that will be beneficial to stability and security in the region. Yeah, I, and are you know, they worth the paper it might be printed on? So the other thing is, remember when Brock, I don't have to tell you, General, the first thing President Obama did is take out those missiles, those offensive missiles out of Europe, and he thought that would be a good sign to reset the relationship. They looked at it as weakness. And now Joe Biden st- stops the Nord, uh, allows the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to continue. They thought that might be a friendly gesture. I think it's looked at as weakness. And here's what Vladimir Putin said after, Do- after Joe Biden said he was a killer. Listen to this. I remember in my childhood when we argued in the courtyard, we used to say, it takes one to know one. As he said, we know each other personally. What would I reply to him? I would say, I wish you health. I wish you health. I say that without any irony or joke. What does he mean by that? I'm not sure. I mean, that bantering uh, back and forth, I I don't think that there's not much substance there other than the fact that uh, when uh, President Biden acceded to the the description of Putin as being a a killer, it was actually an accurate description. He kills his political opponents and and, and what he has done through the use of force in, in killing civilians is pretty is pretty staggering. Starting in 2000 with Chechnya, all the way up to the all the way up to the present. But uh, yeah, the, I think what President Biden wants to do here is uh, reset the relationship, try to make some some progress uh, with Putin on on strategic nuclear weapons control. Uh, also on some areas like like climate change, uh, I don't think we're going to make any progress whatsoever uh, over Ukraine, Crimea, uh, Belarus, the intimidation and and, uh, and coercion campaign that uh, Putin has been running to bring back into his sphere of influence as many of the former Soviet Union states as he possibly can, certainly the non-aligned states that are not in NATO, but also the intimidation right. and coercion that goes on with the NATO-aligned Eastern European states. I, I don't think we'll make any, any progress there. I hope that he pins the rose on him over the cyber attacks. Putin is running a massive cyber warfare campaign against the United States and Western democracies as an instrument of national power. He is doing it to disrupt and diminish and weaken these democracies, and his primary target is the United States. And criminal cyber activity is a part of that overall campaign. And to not pin the rose on him for that is truly irresponsible. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. That has got to get done as a part of the whole issue of of the Putin cyber warfare campaign. Also, I understand 50% of our troops are out uh, out of Afghanistan. The Taliban is on the rise. They don't recognize the Kabul government. Uh, I forecast doom, Taliban in control. General, what do your sources say? Yeah, pretty much the same. Maybe not immediately, but over time, because the things that that we wanted to hold on to uh, 
is the intelligence capability that we had there. All of our systems supporting the Afghans' significant human intelligence, because obviously the uh, Taliban and the al-Qaeda and ISIS operate in and among the, the Afghan people. So we have huge human intelligence, but our technology uh, intelligence that we bring in terms of our ability to eavesdrop and satellite technology and the rest of it, yeah. uh, drones, uh, all of that is gone. And then the other thing that's very decisive. Real quick, 10 seconds. President, President Ghani about this is the loss of air support. It is decisive. And the Afghans do not have the capability to make up for that. Unnecessary mistake. General Jack, thanks. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. You would think, with all the public policy debates that are taking place right now, that you know the Republican Party would... Uh, be engaged in a significant debate about uh, how are we going to deal with the economy and what are we going to do about climate change and what are we going to do about lo and behold the the single most uh, important issue to them apparently right now is critical race theory who knew that 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 was the threat to our republic but those debates uh, uh, are powerful because they get at uh, what story do we tell about ourselves uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, professor Wilford Riley joins us now. He's associate professor of political science, Kentucky State University, author of Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, and Hate Crime Hoax. Uh, professor, welcome back. What do you think about the president's comments diminishing legitimate concern? I know it. I talk to the people about critical race theory in our schools. Well, I, I think it's like that old line, you protest too much, methinks. I mean, obviously, there are real debates between the left and the right to be had about health care and so on on both sides, and that would actually have some points. But what we teach our kids is one of the most important things yes. that we do as a country. There's, there's really no debate about that. And over the past couple of months, I think uh, Chris Rufo, who's a guy I know well, a, a friend of mine, and a number of other academics and researchers have kind of pushed this idea of what actually is going on in a lot of these diversity trainings that every executive has to take, what's going on in the classrooms where almost every kid is enrolled, 90% of kids go to public school. And that, that's a real and valid question. I mean, if you go to these websites and look at uh, some of the major curriculums that are out there, 16, 19 project curriculum and so on, that, that is a real question. It is. And he diminished it. He said they like to raise money off it. I think he misses the boat here. And, Professor, it became very clear to me. We're going so out of our way to categorize people, black, white, uh, gay, straight, male, female. We go out of our way to categorize. And we never used to do that. That was the beginning of this division, even innocent categorization. Now, all of a sudden, it is you're this, so you must think that. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that what happened is that we we kind of reached the end of a long period of of almost peace on these issues, and now we, now we have to decide, I think, what we're going to do going forward. So, I mean, I grew up in a in a big city during the 1990s, and it sounds almost cliche to say something like everyone cheered for Michael Jordan and Larry Bird, but there's an element of truth to that. We'd gone through the 1960s. I mean, there'd obviously been major clashes along racial and political lines. We'd seen political figures killed. And for a long time, the consensus in the country was, Let, let's try our best to be colorblind. You obviously noticed it. You know, Jimmy's white or Marcus is black or something, but let's emphasize how little that matters. 
and for a lot of reasons of discussion in the academy, um, you know, a new generation coming of age, we're now we're now facing this question of, you know, how should we deal with race again? Does this matter? And I think there's a lot to be said for colorblindness in the public space. I don't I don't think we need to teach kids that, you know, all whites are racist on one hand or black people are very different from whites on the other. I mean, the, the basic idea of we're all American seems like a good starting point for third graders. Uh, I would think so. So this woman, who's a, a teacher since 2014 at a prestigious school in New Jersey, Dana Stangle Plow, just quit. She refused to do uh, critical race theory in her classrooms. Here's a little of the reason why. Today I am resigning from a job that I love. My name is Dana Stangle Plow. I became an English teacher at Dwight Englewood School seven years ago because as a parent, I loved how the school both nurtured and challenged my own children. But over the past few years, the school has embraced an ideology that is damaging to our students' intellectual and emotional growth, an ideology that requires students to see themselves not as individuals, but as representatives of either an oppressor or oppressed group. This theoretical framework pervades every division of Dwight Englewood as the singular way of seeing the world. And she went on to say, as a result, students arrive in my classroom accepting the theory as fact. People born with less melanin in their skin are oppressors, and people born with more melanin in their skin are oppressed. Men are oppressors, women are oppressed, and so on. And she couldn't do it anymore. But this is happening all across the country, and I think on some level it's pandemic-related because more parents are seeing what their kids are learning. So how would you characterize this grassroots movement to stop it? Well, I think that last line is especially important. Um, for probably the past 25, 30 years, when you've had sort of radical ideas in education, I mean, for example, there's sex education classes, at least at high school and college, that openly show porn, pornography. I don't think a lot of parents have been aware of that. I mean, there are at least five or six incidents I can think of where schools would almost – would totally write up two curriculums, curricula, one for the teachers to be aware of and another one that was sort of simplified – with some of the Howard Zinn style resources taken out that was sent home for the parents. That's been a real issue. Now, when you basically have cameras in classrooms, when you have Zoom on high-end laptops coming into every classroom, a lot of parents were able to see what their kids were learning, and they've more than a few times they've been surprised by it. And this does seem to be an issue, particularly at some of the more high-end kind of avant-garde schools. And I will say for the moms and dads out there, it cost a hell of a lot of money. Um, we've seen the, the Brearley letter, for example, where someone gave a similar description of the curriculum and, you know, the famous private prep school. Um, didn't make no mistake, this is going into ordinary upper middle class public schools as well, working class public schools as well. But I mean, yeah, I think parents are seeing it. I think they have some questions about it. One of the debates here is whether it makes sense to call this critical race theory. I don't, I don't think that matters all that much. What I would say is that the radical idea of the United States in education, in my own field of political science, so on, basically has kind of three points. One is that facially neutral systems, things like intelligence testing or the police, are in fact set up to oppress minorities or the poor. The second is that disparities, any difference in performance between groups, that different test scores across the races kind of prove that this is the case. And the third point is that the solution is, quote, unquote, equity, which what Dr. Kendi called, talked about, which is assigned proportional representation by group. So I think if you're a parent, you see your school district talking a lot about equity or white privilege or appropriation. You might want to you know, go down to the building for the next parent-teacher meeting and ask some questions. 
I would think so. I, I thought about you, too, when Condoleezza Rice was asked similar questions. She's not naive to what America was, how much progress we've made, and how much progress we needed to make from 1860 to 1960, and she lived it. And um, this is how she characterized what's going on in this country as disarrays. Cut 20. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome that horrible massacre. I want them to know about 63 in Birmingham, but I want them to know that the mayor of Birmingham today is a black man who grew up in a poor community. So I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. And I want us as a country to do it together because uh, I don't want this to be black against white, my weaponization of my identity against yours. I mean, it sounds like something you would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a great deal of truth to that. So the, the real question here to some extent is context. No one denies, for example, that America had slaves in the past. But I've on several occasions asked students, and this is, this is at a good state college, whether they thought only America had slaves in the past. And more than a few, probably more than a quarter actually, have said that they, they thought this was the case. They weren't aware of, say, the Barbary slave trade or what went on around the world. So I think that it's important to teach students about the bad things in our past. But I think it's important to teach them in the context of prior to this date, which we helped establish, slavery was legal. It's, it's foolish to teach about your society as beautiful and perfect in every way True. and unflawed, but it's also silly to present an almost all-warts portrait of the place where you live. I mean, the old, society, the old idea is warts and all, not just only the negatives. And uh, one a very important kind of final point, do, teaching this stuff to some extent damages kids. I mean, the political scientist Eric Kaufman actually ran a test where he had black students read a passage from a book by an author named Tanahishi Coates that described America as a terrible, dark place you can't move forward. And another group of students, black and white, read a passage about the, the past military conquests of both blacks and whites, sort of a neutral history passage. And one thing that he found, among a bunch of other conclusions, was that the people that read the passage talking about how you can't succeed in America felt more depressed, felt less motivated, felt less able themselves to make it. And I think what uh, Dr. Rice is saying is we don't want to teach any of our kids that, no matter what color they happen to be, teach a fair story about the country, but also point out that anyone obviously can succeed here. The vice president right now is a black woman. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I just thought, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just know from my education, mostly in the 70s, no one ever ducked slavery. No one ever dealt with what happened in the 1960s. Uh, Muhammad Ali is the person I looked up to most. You can't study Muhammad Ali and not see what he spoke at colleges, how he spoke out against racism, how he didn't want to go to war because, you know, if I'm not treated well here, why should I go over and kill people I don't even know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I did reports on this in a mostly white working class area. So mm-hmm. I remember Roots in 1976 was the number one miniseries of all time. I still think it remains that way. Uh, Alex Hill is one of the finest authors of his generation. I just thought we were on the right path until the last couple of years. Final thought on this? Yeah, I think that's absolutely important because school in a big city in the 70s or 80s, which we both experienced, to put it very politely, wasn't run by conservatives. 
uh, the students weren't <laughs> culture-free yeah. innocents. So the, the question really right now is whether we should go beyond the old school Muhammad Ali and Howard Zinn and so on toward a more radical theory and a more radical style of teaching American history, sex education, criminal justice in the school. And I think talking to someone else who went to a big city school in the same era, I think that sounds a little crazy. It's, it's not like they were right-wing to begin with. But that's the debate. It's not like anyone is proposing we go back to teaching racism at all. That's not on the table. I hope so. Uh, oh, Professor, uh, always great to talk to you and get a perspective on something that never goes away. More Every day there's two or three stories that are top five stories that are race-related, and a lot of them uh, just seem to be debilitating. Uh, so thanks so much for keeping it in perspective. Thanks for having me on. You got to run. Uh, Professor uh, Wilford Riley joins us uh, from Kentucky State University. When we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 7669 You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. This is what happens when you choose your vice president based on gender and skin color rather than actual talent and expertise. Oh, I, We're I don't We're seeing that disaster agree. unfold that's way, right now. That's so mean. Oh, it's uh, mean. She was it's attorney general true. of the state of California. She was a United States senator. You can't uh, demean her just because she Well, there's her. a reason why she got zero votes and had to drop out of the race before they even started taking votes. It, it's not mean. It's factual. And it's if she said, well, I don't like uh, how tall she is, I don't like uh, the way she talks. No, it's competence. Tell me one thing she did as a candidate. Tell me one thing she did as a uh, on the debate stage. Watch her getting taken apart by Tulsi Gabbard. Attack Joe Biden to the point where I guess Jill Biden attacked her. Jill, I said. And then he gets she gets named because there was really no other choice. Everybody, including the governor of Michigan, dropped out, leaving her because he says he's going to pick a female as really the only choice as a candidate. Her credentials look good, but her, her speeches are terrible. Her uh, ability to ad-lib and debate are awful. If you saw her speak, and you saw her at, uh, it was really an event she had 75 days to prepare for, and she was not prepared for this simple question. Cut to. We are going to the border. We've been to the border. So this whole, this whole, this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I mean, I don't, I don't understand the point that you're making. How could you not understand the point she's making? How could you laugh after saying it? And I thought it was very curious that people that know her say she never used to laugh like that. And here's the thing. Sometimes people get nervous in laughter. Once in a while, you might do something in a public setting that you want her to get back. But the front story right now on Mediaite is the White House perplexed by Kamala Harris's performance on first foreign policy trip. He gave her a job. Sell H.R. 1. Hasn't done anything that I could see. Okay, maybe she's busy. Sell on the vaccine. I haven't seen anything that she has done. Maybe she's busy. And handle the border crisis. Even though they don't use the word crisis, we all know it works here. And she's done nothing effectively. So uh, the exchange she had with CNN and NBC is significant. She doesn't take questions from Fox. Here's Shelley, Senator Shelley Moore Capito. She was on special report last night. So she is obviously negotiating and disappointed that her negotiations break off with President Biden. But she also looked at her fellow, a former colleague, Senator, now Vice President Harris. Cut eight. 
You know, the one thing that struck me is in her, her response when she says, well, she hadn't been to Europe yet, and she hasn't been to the southern border. You know, we're talking about our own country here, our own southern border, uh, which is a tremendous security. I, I'm the um, appropriator, or I, I'm the uh, ranking member on appropriations for Homeland Security, uh, where we see 170,000 people. And they're not just coming from the Northern Triangle countries. They're coming from uh, Venezuela and, and Brazil and other parts of South America, Cuba. And, and, and so, you know, we've got a much bigger problem here than what the administration will admit to. Right, and that's the issue. It is the problem. If the problem is at the White House and it's at the border. Harmy Dillon knows her from California. Cut 13. What you see here is a calculated desire to avoid the border while she's been the vice president. She certainly was a frequent visitor before when she was pulling stunts during the last election cycle. In 2018 and 2019, she even held a press conference and did TV interviews there at the border. But now, even though Democrats, including Henry Cuellar, a congressman from Texas, has asked her to come uh, to the border, she is avoiding it as if it were a downed power line in a rainstorm. I mean, she wants nothing to do with it because there's nothing good about what's going on there, and she doesn't have a good explanation. And if, if she's telling us that this was a successful trip just now, she knows that's a lie. It's yeah. been a disaster for the administration. She called it a big success. She also, when asked to go down to the border, she dismissed it as a grand gesture, a border visit as unnecessary. It's political theater. No, it's not. You could make it political theater. For example, not leaving the embassy, which I heard you didn't do, in Guatemala, that makes it a theater. You're not the Queen of England. You could go down there when your security goes and maps this out, looks it out, and goes and secures it. You could go out there and actually meet the Guatemalan people. When did you get 25 of those of those who went back and forth? Maybe that would be effective for you. Maybe actually talking to law enforcement there. Maybe going to the Guatemala border and seeing what they have. Kind of surprise them. See what kind of border they have there and visualize it. Then when they turn around and say, I'm going to put 5,000 people on the border, you turn around and say, yeah, I, I saw the size of that border. 5,000 won't do anything. And instead, she turns around and pledges more money from us to Mexico. Listen to this. In her two stops, she promised pledged millions of dollars in U.S. loans and investment for housing and agriculture in southern Mexico, $130 million for improving working conditions in Mexico, including addressing safety issues and child labor. She also blamed it on climate change and emphasized the need for women's rights. So why not make it a uh, potpourri of everything you ran on that nobody wanted to hear from you about? And lastly, real quick, just to talk a little bit uh, more about the uh, – uh, talk a little bit more about race in America. Glenn Lowry, who's going to be on Tucker Carlson today, it drops at 4 o'clock, a guest here, and a guest with me at 7 o'clock, a professor in Brown, at Brown on, on CRT in our country. Cut 23. How many times can you remind the white majority of this country that their numbers are shrinking and they're about to be dominated by a coming... Uh, non-white coalition of Latino and black and whatnot. How many times can you tell them that they are intrinsically racist, that their lives are built upon an unearned privilege? How many times can you accuse them of failing to see your humanity when, in fact, you're living in the freest country and you are the richest people of African descent ever to have walked on the planet? I'm talking about black Americans. How many times can you do that? and not have them get the idea that they've got an identity, too, that it's a racial identity and it's not yours. That's not the world you want to live in. From abolitionists in the 1860s to today, whites have always helped move the country forward. Now they're being blamed. That's the problem. Brian Kilmeade Show. 
It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. All right, thanks everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world, a city that's getting back to uh, much closer to normal than I've seen it over the last 15 months. See a lot of people in the city. You don't see a lot in Midtown, but you see a lot out. Seth Barron will be with us. He's author of a brand new book, The Last Days of New York, a reporter's true tale. Now it's become a national story as Governor Cuomo covered in scandal and Mayor de Blasio from day one covered in incompetence. And together, they helped destroy the number one uh, city in the country and the state uh, at one point was, now is not. And Dr. Stephen Quay is standing by. He's founder of Alasa Therapeutics and author of Stay Safe, a physician's guide to surviving coronavirus. But he penned, along with another esteemed doctor, uh, scientist, a look at the coronavirus and its origins. And you're going to want to hear from him in the Wall Street Journal. So let's go to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I am extremely disappointed because we offered the president basically what he asked us to do the first time we met with him, which was a trillion dollars over eight years, including baseline spending, and that it wouldn't include a tax increase. And uh, he, those were our, that was our red line. Yep, Senator Shelley Amor Capito just spoke again 30 minutes ago about what's happening and what happened to the negotiations that fell apart. Sorry, it's not you, uh, Senator Capito. Joe just uh, wants to deal with somebody else. He picked up the phone. He called Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema, and Senator Bill Cassidy because they were working on a bipartisan track parallel to the president and Capito. Dumb moves all around, but we'll see if infrastructure can be bipartisan. Number two. Today I am resigning from a job that I love. I became an English teacher at Dwight Englewood School seven years ago. But over the past few years, the school has embraced an ideology that requires students to see themselves not as individuals, but as representatives of either an oppressor or oppressed group. Critical race theory, the backlash, teachers quitting, you just heard, parents uniting. On a former president mocks, a pitch battle, Republicans and patriots seem to be winning as the left even tries to cancel apple pie. I'll explain. Number one. Wall Street Journal indicated that there was a study in process on the uh, origin of the uh, virus and that the State Department did shut the ongoing probe down in January. I saw the uh, report. I think uh, it's uh, on a number of levels uh, incorrect. All right, we're about to find out. Uh, that is the Secretary of State yesterday in front of on Capitol Hill. Wuhan lab leak. It's not a theory the Secretary of State can sign on to yet as momentum grows that bats might just be the fall guy. Uh, joining us now is Stephen Quay. Uh, Dr. Uh, Quay, welcome back. Well, thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. We're seeing a lot of you uh, around talking in a way in which we can all understand that aren't doctors or scientists. Uh, You write uh, in your column in one of the areas with you say um, you say the COVID-19 has a genetic footprint that has never been observed in a natural coronavirus, but one used repeatedly by gain of function researchers, supercharging viruses. You still hold to that, I imagine. Can you expand on it? Well, sure, I can. I mean, basically, the two rare events happened 
simultaneously in this thing called the furin site, which is an, an activation. It's, it's basically the spring, like in the, in the jack-in-the-box, that allows the virus to pop up and inject your cells with, with RNA. So first, the presence of a furin site, regardless of how it's created, is not never been seen in this class of viruses. And then when you look at the letters that are used in this furin site, they use these letters that are never used by coronaviruses anywhere. So basically, you have, you have a phrase that, that cannot be spoken in a language that's never used. Yes, for civilians like me. Uh, I'm reading that, that article from Vanity Fair. And to try to make it as simple as possible, they say that in writing up what happened in, uh, in Wuhan and spread around the globe, they say this Vanity Fair story says they were searching for people's explanation about what happened. And one scientist says they were searching for publicly available library of genetic sequences. Several teams, including a group of drastic researchers, realized, and here's the symbol, RATG13, appeared identical to RABTCOV4991, the virus from the cave where the miners fell ill in 2012. Now, for scientists, when they see the second one, they say this is the virus from that cave. But what if you didn't write that? What if you wrote something different? You wouldn't see the you wouldn't see the link. Well, as July as in July as questions mounted, Shi uh, Zengali told Science Magazine that her lab had renamed the sample for clarity. For clarity? Are you kidding me? But the skeptics like me, the renaming exercise looked like an effort to hide the sample's connection to that mine that would have drawn everything back to the lab, not the wet market. Can you unwind that uh, this hypothesis? Well, I can, I can, uh, Brian. And it's, we're talking about a particular paper she wrote in February that has been viewed over a million times. So it's the the foundation of the entire thing we understand about about uh, SARS-CoV-2. And she makes two misrepresentations in the same paper. So you've hit on the first one, which is. Um, Five or six years ago, she was in a cave, uh, in a mine, excuse me, where six miners had been working. All six of them got very sick. Three of them actually died after months and months in the hospital. And, and, and people got master's degrees and graduate degrees studying these patients, and they had a coronavirus. So, so she was talking about that, those viruses, calling them 4991 for about you know, five years. And then suddenly in this paper, she uses a completely different naming system she's never used before for the same virus. And it took it took the, the drastic group, which I am in and out of at times, to, to identify um, that that was the case. But the other more telling, the more telling thing, Brian, is there has never been a furin site in this class of coronaviruses. So she publishes the sequence of this virus, but she stops six letters before the furin cleavage site. She, she doesn't tell the world that she's the first to have discovered this furin cleavage site, which, you know, if you're an innocent virologist, this is, this is really cool. Two weeks later, a Canadian French team said, okay, we, we, we see this furin cleavage site, and they use the phrase, this probably causes the gain of function in what this virus will do in humans. So, you know, there's probably some deep psychology there, what you wouldn't want to show you, you know, the thing that you created. But it's quite remarkable that she stopped six letters out of 30,000 before, before telling the world about what she had put in the virus. So, you know, if, if we're watching CSI, we could all follow crime. Very few, sci- you know, non-scientists and doctors like me 
Sometimes we get lost in these numbers and these symbols and these phrases, and now we all know gain of function. I couldn't have picked that out a month ago. But for people looking to put this together, we just, you know, it it was frantic. Everyone's trying to survive and find out uh, how do we get a test and how do we get an effective test and how do we survive? How do we treat this? Now that we're getting on top of it in America and Israel and and many other countries, we're looking around. So why were we so misled? One of the people that seemed determined to mislead us was a fellow scientist named Peter Dasik, who was featured along with Jamie Metzl in a Leslie Stahl 60 Minutes interview. And she seemed skeptical, just by my view, of what he was saying. Listen to his explanation as we try to figure out why people seem to be covering up rather than finding out what this was to make sure people don't die. Listen. We met with them. We said, do you audit the lab? And they said, annually. Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff? Yes. But no. you're just was... taking their word for it. Well, what else can we do? There's a limit to what you can do. And we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions. They weren't vetted in advance. Uh, and the answers they gave, we found to be um, believable, um, correct, and convincing. But weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? They destroyed evidence. They punished scientists who were trying to give evidence on this very question of the origin. Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin issue. No, no, I know. Issue. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Were there Chinese government minders in the room? Every time you were asking questions. There were Ministry of Foreign Affairs staff in the room throughout our stay. Absolutely. They were there to make sure everything went smoothly from the China side. Or to make sure they weren't telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You sit in a room with people who are scientists and you know what a scientific statement is and you know what a political statement is. Uh, We had no problem distinguishing between the two. Okay, I'll take the last part first. When you sit in a room with a scientist while security officials are behind them, can you uh, judge the candor of that scientist? Well, I think, uh, I think, you know, I think we're very fortunate in America to not really understand what it's like to live in a totalitarian regime. But um, I, I think it's extremely clear that when you have CCP party members, and even some of the scientists at the Wuhan Institute are members of the party, but when they're mixed in with uh, with this 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 curated tour, as, as Jamie calls it, which is I think a wonder a wonderful description of what went on there, um, you you have to know that candor is not is not going to happen. But he he was trying to tell sixty minutes. That's exactly what happened. He also rounded up those twenty seven scientists to sign off on the fact that this came from a bat and a wet market, not from the Wuhan lab, and published it in a journal that you guys consider prestigious, Lancet. Who were those 27, and, and why were they so sure so quickly? Well, you know, what happened was the paper got published in February. Everybody looked at it, and what it, what it, what it did, Brian, is it satisfies sort of a check-the-box for people that aren't embedded in this kind of research and thinking about it. So we are familiar with, with, with this, these things coming out of wet markets. So there's a wet market involved. You see this letter, and you just write it off. So probably 80% of scientists have decided not to dig into it like I did. Just, you know, that was enough for them. 
We now know through Freedom of Information uh, requests that, in fact, that letter was highly, highly orchestrated by Peter Daszak himself, and in fact, in fact, suggesting who should be on it, who shouldn't be on it. Dr. Ralph Barrick, who's a very prominent synthetic biologist who who makes viruses up, you know, in the lab completely, they, they decided for him not to be on the letter because that that might, you know, remind people of what you can do in a lab with the virus. So, so the whole thing was a charade. Uh, and that and that's really unfortunate because uh, it just it undergrades credibility from the beginning. And it, and it heightened your interest in getting the answers. What's been the response to your column? Well, it's been I think it's been I think it's been favorable. I actually had the opportunity to to do a forty minute formal debate. So I've got a I got a, a an eighth grade daughter that's you know doing debate in her school system. So I was I, you know she was telling me what's going to happen and what we did. So the, you know I was I was the pro with respect to a lab origin and this professor from Columbia was was the con. But I, I think it, I think it was very clear in that process because you're, you're you really have to focus down that in three minutes I can tell you why this couldn't have possibly come from nature. <laughs> and so um, I, I don't know. It's 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 kind of Frustrating because I think the most important thing is that people understand this. Yes. I think then we should turn to well, how do we never have this happen again? For gosh sakes, they lied last and, time. And They're going to lie there. again, uh, uh, Doctor Quay, and that's what's so frustrating is we could have stopped it, according to scientists like you, if we knew what was going to hit us. We did not know there was asymptomatic spread, and we did not know if it would spread from human to human contact. In fact, according to Josh Rogan's book, uh, President Xi lied to Donald Trump directly. He says it's going away in the spring. We're not. Don't be worried about this. So you have certain relationships, and there's certain things in, in the international community you consider norms. Then you have Condoleezza Rice goes. They lied about SARS and all their other stuff. We should have known they were going to lie about this. Now, where do you stand on the need for gain of function research? Yeah. So, I, in, in the last year, I've looked at it very carefully. It's been around about 20 years. I think I've, I've looked at every significant paper in that. And I have to say, when I stand back and say, okay, they did this work, they risk doing, you know, they risk a laboratory escape for every one of these studies for 20 years. What was the benefit? And I have not seen what I would describe as a benefit with respect to either a vaccine or a therapeutic. So, so um, I, you know, I, I'm happy to have a debate and let them try one more time to tell me why why they think they should do it. But well, I, I'm with I, you. I'm pretty, pretty heavily on the side. It's not necessary. Right. And you believe it did come from a, the, the lab and you back it up with your experience and with your research. I, so next time Dr. Anthony Fauci says he's not for gain of function research, I think we all should have this clip available from 2012. Cut 31. If you look at basic research as we've approached it, integral to that study has always been the issue of gain-of-function research. There are a few ways to look at gain-of-function research. There's the naturally occurring mutations which naturally give gain-of-function, and investigators study these effects on the phenotypes of interest. Does this mutation make something more transmissible, more pathogenic, or adapt to host better, or what historically investigators have done is to actually create gain of function by making mutations, passage adaptation, or other newer genetic techniques such as reverse genetics and genetic reassortment. So he's for it, uh, and he was for it in the past, but he says we weren't. They weren't doing it there because they told him he, they weren't, and he says we're not doing it here. So final thought, Dr. Quay. Well, I mean, I think uh, I, I think it, there's, there's, 
there's just no question that the grant requests involve gain of function of the research that that we know about that has been done there uh, was was gain of function research in the past. There's another thing that 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 was going on here that people don't really focus on is so they were going into bat caves in the middle of nowhere in China where the you know the population is two or three people per kilometer squared and they're bringing them back to Wuhan, 11 million people with a subway system that you can go from the Wuhan Institute to New York City without ever going outside because the same subway station goes to the airport. I call that gain of opportunity. And, and, and so collecting viruses out in the wild and bringing them back to the lab is a really dangerous thing. And I have done an analysis. A lot of these gain of function are putting 1,000 to 2,000 years of evolution into a virus in an afternoon. So, you know, it's one thing to say you're going to get ahead of nature, but my goodness, we don't have to get ahead of nature for two millenniums because those kind of things never happen. Dr. Stephen Quaid, thanks for making it uh, sound reasonable and understandable. Appreciate your column, too. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You know, uh, pick up his book, uh, Stay Safe, A Physician's Guide to Surviving the Coronavirus. Brian Kilmeade Show. Your call's next, then Seth Barron inside New York. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Do you feel that they... um undermine you in the press by talking about the negotiations? Well, I think obviously when you have another object over there, another plan that is going to be more money, and they've already, they'd already said that, and they said that it included other things, obviously uh, the White House is going to look towards that. So I, I don't think it helped. And right. Uh, so the president was at $2.4 trillion. He got it down to around $1 trillion. Senator Capito said, I think we could do a deal here. So she's negotiating, gets a call yesterday from the president, said, yeah, we're at an impasse. I don't see that improving. And then he calls up Joe Manchin. He calls up Kirsten Cinema, And he calls up Bill Cassidy. Says, I like what you guys are doing. You're already up to $900 billion. Cassidy's talking about capping a bunch of old oil wells to help with the methane gas. Uh, that is an issue because everything is about green energy uh, with this administration and climate change. So he thinks they can deal with uh, Senator Portman, Senator Mikowski, uh, Senator John Tester. They think they could use some of the House problem solvers. Uh, evidently, they got 29 senators that would sign on to something, uh, guaranteed they would sign on to something if they can agree on in a bipartisan way and then bring it to the president. So that would be the infra- infrastructure deal that I predicted would happen. But I thought Capitol was knee deep in a deal But she was undermined by her own party. I really wish they would get on the same page. And I blame Mitch McConnell. Don't undermine one veteran senator to let another veteran senator go and say, I got a better deal working behind your back. She must be a little ticked off. I'll give you more on that as we continue. Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't go anywhere. BrianKilmeadeShow.com to order the podcast. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
The challenge for Mr. de Blasio, who I worked for for three years, 14 or 16, where we had crime going down every year, is to try and reverse what will end up being a negative legacy in the crime area after a great start. And that challenge is going to be very difficult with a demoralized police force with uh, significant cuts in uh, monies and services for the police department with a, uh, a political uh, race underway, the mayor's race, where everybody is running away from his endorsement because they don't want to be tainted with uh, issues that uh, uh, he is right. now being uh, painted with. Well, uh, Bill Bratton with a brand new book out talking about policing in his memoir. Really, he's one of the most esteemed uh, commissioners in American law enforcement history outside Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, he was talking about what it is like right now in New York City. So bad that their current police commissioner, Dermot Shea, does not show up for press conferences about crime. He actually went to a big event and left out the back door, does not want to talk to the press. My opinion is because he does not have the power to fight it the way he wants to, but yet he is responsible for it. And he does just waiting out de Blasio until if he gets to keep this $245,000 a year job. Uh, he'll do it under somebody that's going to empower him. But that's my opinion. I want to see what the reporting's about. And that's why I'm bringing in Seth Barron. He wrote a book that's now out called The Last Days in New York, A Reporter's True Tale. He actually knows these people, and he actually knows the, the players and why things are so bad. Uh, Seth, congratulations on the book. Uh, what's your take on Bill Bratton's assessment of crime in New York? Well, I think uh, I think Bill Bratton is, is 100% right. I mean, crime is way up. Crime has never gone up this fast in New York. That's why the people are feeling the shock. Yes, murders are not where they were in the early 90s, but the acceleration is is fantastic, and it's it's really making people real. Um, Bill de Blasio has uh, sat on the police. I think you're absolutely right about Dermot Shea, but here's, here's the thing, Brian. Um, a lot of the reforms that have been put into place, these are all codified, like, the city council and the state legislature have put these into law. So bail reform, uh, qualified immunity, the Right to Know Act, the diaphragm law. These are all like, you know, these have all been legislated. So even if we got a law and order mayor in, it's not clear that he'd be able to um, impose like stricter policing effectively. Which has uh, got to be frustrating. I think it really started with that bail reform. No cash bail. So what? very few crimes are you actually jailed for? You're out the same day. So a lot of cops are saying, wait a second. Uh, what am I even arresting them for? It's just an exercise. It's got to cost me my time. So the police commissioner yesterday uh, said it was once again a no-show at a press conference held by Mayor de Blasio where he talked about the issues when it comes to violence in New York City. See if this makes sense to you. Cut 39. It's not because of one thing. Let's be really clear. There's not one cause for something like this. There's a lot of different pieces. And again, the fact that the court system's not working, the economy is not working, people have been pent up for months and months, so many issues underlying this challenge. We, all of us together, have been keeping this city safe now for seven years. So let's just be 100% clear. It's an extraordinarily difficult time in our city's history. It may be the single worst combination of crises New York City has ever faced. Well, there's so much is self-inflicted. You mentioned all these changes that he was behind. And then you could mention, on top of that, getting rid of the anti-crime unit, uh, cutting a billion dollars out of the budget, getting rid of the homeless unit. So now we don't even know where these mentally ill are, can't even be rounded up in case of bad weather 
or 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 just a you just want to be able to track them. So he, he made things markedly worse. Do you agree? Oh, I would absolutely agree. And, you know, COVID has been the greatest screen for Bill de Blasio. All he does is blame COVID. Uh, meanwhile, you know, these other things he's done, letting people out of jail, the closed Rikers plan, um, these have all put people on the street who are clearly committing crimes. I mean, this is who's doing it. People who are released from Rikers, people who've been released from upstate. Uh, and, you know, his only solution is cure violence, which is to send, you know, ex-cons with lived experience of the streets out to talk to other gang members and can try to convince them not to shoot people. Um, this doesn't work. But, you know, he's every year or so he brings it up as like a, a, his, his great innovation, this violence interruption program. Uh, it's completely unproven. It has no basis in, you know, science or criminology. But this is his huge, you know, initiative. And it's what he just keeps coming back to that and demanding that, you know, federal gun legislation pro prohibit the sale of handguns which, you know, appear not to go off in North Carolina. They don't. They wait until they get to New York, and then they go off. Yeah, that's the problem. That's who's going to crack down on guns. Now, how about the terrible relationship between the Democratic governor and the Democratic mayor? How have the, Ameri how have the New York residents paid the price for this? Well, I mean, it's just been a, a clown show ever since. I mean, they, they've, been, they've had a long relationship dating back to the 90s when they both were in the Clinton administration. And ever since... You know, Bill de Blasio first came in, uh, Cuomo's been uh, bigfooting him and stepping on him, and they just go back and forth like a Punch and Judy show. And naturally, you know, New Yorkers suffer for it. They, you know, they, can't, they can't cooperate. They can't get anything done. It's a complete ego play on both sides. And so, you know, it's just been more, you know, more of a disaster. It just it certainly doesn't help. Let's put it that way. Here is uh, Governor Cuomo going after de Blasio for, uh, in June. Listen to this. Cut 40. It was a disgrace. What happened in New York City was inexcusable. I believe the mayor underestimates the scope of the problem. I think he under underestimates the duration of the problem. I mean, this is a guy, he's doing this publicly. He couldn't have picked up the phone. You want to show any type of coordination or change the policy rather than score political points? Look, they hate each other. And de Blasio ran his good friend Cynthia Nixon against Cuomo in the, in the primary last time. Uh, Cuomo goes after de Blasio. They're just constantly trying to undercut and undermine each other, which is weird because they're both liberal Democrats basically from the same far left wing of the party. Uh, but this is the thing. When you have a one-party state, not only do you get no choice, you just – everyone's subject to their, to their crazy internecine fighting all the time. Seth Barron's here. The Last Days in New York is his book. You know, bring us inside the story that uh, America got a glimpse of because for a while they were going after the people just loving Governor Cuomo, hoping he'll be the Democratic nominee. Now with 10 accusers, a scandal because he used staff allegedly to write his book. He wrote a book, which is, should be a, a crime in its own right, about how to beat a pandemic. Yet we have the worst numbers in the country. And now you have a guy, too, with the nursing homes lying about the numbers. Basically, everything goes right back to him. And as I mentioned before, uh, 10 accusers. And now you have somebody that might be giving his family, friends and donors special 
uh, uh, special coronavirus tests during the peak of the pandemic. So how does this guy still have a job? Did you anticipate him being so stained with scandal, Seth? Um, yeah, I did. And I had written about this before. You know, the guy he called his father's third son, uh, Perco- Joe Prococo, who is his closest aide, uh, went to prison for graft. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Cuomo himself is not, like, venal in the sense of, like, taking bribes, but he certainly facilitates it for other people. Um, and, you know, the sex stuff kind of came as a bit of a surprise. I, I still don't know what to make of that. But um, the, the idea that Cuomo is, uh, you know, fraught with, like, influence peddling and all kinds of things like that, uh, that doesn't particularly surprise me. He, he, he's got a, a his, his administration has been dirty and uh, reckless uh, with, you know, economic development funding that just went nowhere. So, sure, it doesn't surprise me. Do you think, number one, do you think he not only survives but runs for re-election? Oh, I definitely, he's definitely running for re-election, and I think he'll, I think, you know, he'll probably win. I mean, that's another thing with having a one-party state. Uh, You know, the the people in control, it's hard to dislodge them. When you look at this story, what I want people listening to around the country— because although we're on WRCN and 77 WABC and WLIR, people around the country, they're hearing this story and saying, that reminds me of my city. Heather McDonald mm-hmm. weigh in, and she wrote the book, The War on Cops. She also endorsed your book. Listen to what she said last night, Cut 42. To the left, crime is a racist fiction. Uh, they simply do not ex- acknowledge that it exists. And the biggest lie that defines the left today is that every disparity in America is the result of racism, alternative explanations such as the academic skills gap or uh, cultural and behavioral differences are not just not allowed. They'll get you branded as a racist. Uh, but reality will, will eventually assert itself. And what we're seeing today is a record-breaking increase in violent street crimes in city after city. Two dozen blacks are killed every day to absolutely no attention from the press. That's more than all white and Hispanic homicide victims combined, even though blacks are only 12 percent of the nation's population. Why? Because of this massive delegitimation of law enforcement. Do you agree with everything she said? Because a lot of cities are saying that's New York, but it's also Chicago. It's also Los Angeles. It's certainly Seattle and Portland. Well, it's every Democrat-run city in the country, and Heather is a genius, and you know she puts these things perfectly. And it's exactly what we're seeing here in New York. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said the other day that the reason that there's high crime in uh, some neighborhoods is because the police are there. She said, "Why are there's no crime in some in 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 rich neighborhoods because there's no police there?" I mean, she's this complete inversion of reality, this total confusion of cause and effect that dominates leftist thinking. Uh, Yes, it's a disaster. de Blasio, all he talks about is the redistribution of wealth. He even says that eliminating screening for junior high school will help redistribute the wealth. Um, You know, and this is essentially what he means is, like, we have to make sure that black and Latino kids get into the good schools, even if they didn't show up for school, even if their grades aren't good. Um... So that's what he means by redistribution of wealth, simply like, uh, you know, promoting black and Latino kids, even if they're, you know, merit-based 
uh, scores aren't quite there. And they want to also flatten the curve when it comes to these elite, uh, these elite students going to, to elite schools. They don't want to see that anymore. They want to eliminate well, that test because it's racist, right? <clears throat> well, yeah, because uh, the, like the, the specialized test for the good high schools, uh, you know, is basically all the Asian kids dominate it because they work hard. Um, so, but the idea that these schools are somehow excellent as a, apart from who their students are is is, is silly. The it send it, like if you if you send like subpar students to the schools, then the schools will be subpar. Uh, and it's just such idiocy. Just so you know how bad it is, uh, 150 shootings between May 3rd and May 30th, uh, the most recent uh, four-week period for which comparable figures are available. Uh, it's a 164% increase uh, from the 57 reported over the same period in 2019 and a massive jump from just 91 in 2020. That's what's going on. And as people come back to the city that you write about, Seth, they're going to realize it is not the same place. The question is, are they capable of getting it back with all these massive resignations uh, and the lack of people filling up the academies and people turning in their badge? Final thought? It's going to be a it's going to be a push. It's going to require major political will. It's going to require the people of New York to stand up and demand public safety and safe streets. And until that happens and until their voice can be louder than that of like the Antifa BLM types, we're going to get more of the same. Congratulations on your book, Seth. The Last Days of New York, a reporter's true tale. Uh, Seth Barron, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. When we come back, your calls, 1-866-408-7669. It's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you, Madam Vice President. For me, it's an honor because I actually got to vote for the first time as a nationalized citizen, and I voted for you. So my question is, what would you say to these women, those mothers, and also women of color on both sides of the border, farmers, many of them who I see every day, um, as a message of hope, but also as what will you do for them in the next coming years? Well, it turns out she wasn't from Univision, but she was invited. To to me, there's still a lot of questions. But who would ever ask a question like that at a press conference? I voted for you. Are you crazy? We know everyone in the media voted for you, so that's just a given. But what kind of what she must have been thinking when she's getting a question like that? And then from Univision, a Spanish-speaking station, they quickly denied that she even worked there. Why would she lie about where she's from then? What a joke. I mean, is this another Borat situation? How does somebody like that get in? Let's find out if there's even more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D. Hey, what's going on in Oklahoma? They may throw out thousands of COVID-19 vaccines because nobody wants them anymore. The expiring doses are slowing from about 8,000 per day to 4,500. That is so low. In addition to a few thousand vaccines that have already gone to waste, there are approximately 80,000 Johnson & Johnson doses set to expire. Why don't we give them to Canada? Why don't we give it to uh, to Mexico? Why don't we give it to Central America? I mean, why let them expire? My goodness, it's all these people are dying. Africa, India. 1%'s been vaccinated. 
Uh, in Oklahoma, 42% of the population has received at least one dose. Uh, 34% of the residents are fully vaccinated. So those numbers pretty low there. They, I mean, obviously you want it to be higher, but like you said, and also about the homeless populations too. I'm sure that you know you can go to homeless shelters and populations yeah. where they're not vaccinated either. And, and I don't stop know. The they could there. get on. They could get online on their own. Next, Terry McAuliffe wins Virginia's Democratic gubernatorial nomination. I know he's been out of the job for about four or eight years. He wants to go back and get it again. He's got nothing else to do. Uh, he defeated Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, who faced and, and denied allegations of sexual assault. We'll see what happens. Uh, he's facing another billionaire Republican. Uh, in Virginia, every once in a while, when there's a Democratic president, there tends to be a Republican governor of Virginia. We'll see what happens. Next, Alyssa Milano considering a run for Congress in 2024. Uh, not many people are lining up to hire as an actor. She's now a full-time activist. I mean, she may seek to go for the, uh, for. she actually knows what district she's going to run for, the 4th Congressional District over in California. Um, since 2009, has re-elected uh, uh, this guy, McClintock. Tom McClintock evidently has been um, uh, had that seat. He's had it for a bunch of terms. He's been elected there since 2009. Last time he got 56% of the vote. Uh, Donald Trump also has beaten uh, President Biden in the district by nine points. So we'll see how that goes. Milano is making the decision soon. We'll see if she'll actually do something. but said sit, sit on the sidelines and say crazy stuff. But at least she apparently has uh, just filmed a fresh installment of Who's the Boss? So I guess another reunion uh, right. show from the past. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's budget proposal replaces mother with birthing. It's such a joke. Uh, birthing people instead of moms. Part of the idiocy of his administration. Next. Bachelorette, this is, a, this is terrible. Chris Harrison, who really did nothing wrong except defend somebody, a contestant, who went to a uh, party that people find offensive now, will now officially be out as host of the, uh, the Bachelor and Bachelorette after 17 seasons. Evidently, the, the ratings are down without him. They think anyone can host. It's still highly successful, but this guy got totally screwed. Just another example of instead of you know you can even use what Obama said a teachable moment say hey you know we know this is wrong but we're gonna look, we're gonna yeah. move forward now but yeah. everybody's he, canceled he's done uh, okay keep it here go to BrianKillMe.com. get one of my books for Father's Day I'll sign it and send it Fox Nation presents podcasts Women of the Bible Speak I'm Shannon Bream host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book Women of the Bible Speak the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today subscribe now on Apple Podcasts Spotify FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you download your podcasts Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends it's America's receptive voice Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We've got a big hour coming your way. Martha McCallum will punctuate it by joining us in studio. It's never easy. I don't want to take any studio guests for granted, but it's always great to see people face-to-face. We're watching the President of the United States. He'll be going overseas. He's overseas now en route to the U.K. Then he's going to head to Brussels. Then he's going to head to Vienna, where he's going to meet with Vladimir Putin. We'll preview and review the trip. It's got to be better than the Vice President's trip. What a disaster. Everyone knows it except her, but I think she knows it too. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I am extremely disappointed because we offered the president basically what he asked us to do the first time we met with him, which was a trillion dollars over eight years, including baseline spending, and that it wouldn't include a tax increase. And uh, he, those were our, that was our red line. Yeah, but he did it anyway. Uh, Joe DiCapito, sorry. 
I'm just not that into you. That's the sudden change of heart from the president as he decides another group of bipartisan legislators working on infrastructure might be better than the senator from West Virginia. Let's talk about it. Number two. Today I am resigning from a job that I love. I became an English teacher at Dwight Englewood School seven years ago. But over the past few years, the school has embraced an ideology that requires students to see themselves not as individuals, but as representatives of either an oppressor or oppressed group. And just like that, a teacher since 2014 walks away from a job at a New Jersey school. Critical race theory, the backlash, teachers quitting, parents uniting, and a former president mocks. A pitch battle Republicans and patriots seem to be winning as the left even tries to cancel apple pie, I'll explain. Number one. Can you commit right now that you will indeed visit the U.S.-Mexico border and will you do it soon? Jeremy, let me tell you something. Yes, I will. And I have before. (laughs) She is awful. Out of her league. That's how uncertain VP Harris looked over the course of three days on our first foreign trip. Unprepared, disinterested, anything but a problem solver. That's how I assess her attempt to go to the root of the border crisis. What say you? And that's pretty much how I look at it. Uh, As you know, the president waited for her to get back before he left. She is now home, goes to Mexico, goes to Guatemala, feels like she had a great success. I don't. I think she was absolutely awful. What I think is worse is it's not going overseas to to cement relations. We have a five-alarm fire going through thousands of miles of our border through New Mexico, California, Arizona, and, uh, of course, Texas. And this administration is ignoring it outside the Homeland Security Secretary, who's not empowered nor motivated to get the border under control. So they say they're going to the root of the problem. Yeah, they're going to go to Central America. That might have been the problem early on, but now you have over 100 countries crossing over. 100 countries crossing over for a chance to, uh, to live out their American dream. Is that okay with you? It is not okay with me. And it should, it should not be okay with the vice president of the United States. Her two stops, she pledged millions of dollars in loans and investments. Fantastic. To Mexico. For doing what? Here's a million dollars. Put people on your border. We're going to come back regularly. Here's some uh, We're going to get to the NGOs. These are the programs we want fostered. Here are the people. What they're saying is why they're leaving. But by the way, Guatemala is not the beginning or end all. Mexico's a problem, too. Every Central American country is a problem. Venezuela is a problem. Brazil's a problem. Haiti's a problem. African countries, Costa Rica, the Caribbean, right, right off our coast, they're pouring in our border. And the vice president of the United States will not take action. She says, I want to go to the, uh, the root of the problem. That's called the White House. Actually, where it's really taking place is called the wall that is not yet finished. But the vice president keeps talking about root causes and embarrassing herself. First, when she said this, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. And I haven't been to Europe. And I I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. Do you understand how stupid that that statement is? And that is why CNN's reported the White House is perplexed by her trip. Another report, a Democratic strategist says it's not considered a success it isn't because it shouldn't be. Acting director of the uh, who did a great job, Chad Wolf, saw the laugh, saw the giggle, saw the statement. Cut nine. Well, first, I would say what's going on at the border is certainly not funny. And so, when the vice president makes uh, or laughs about it, and then sort of uh, equates it to to Europe, there's not a crisis going on in Europe at the time. 
There's a crisis on our southwest border. It requires leadership, and it requires either the president or the vice president making a trip down there to understand what is going on. And it's been over 75 days since she has been put in charge of this crisis. Uh, and the fact that she won't go to the border is very telling. It is telling. So she's getting pushed a little bit because she did come out and say, don't come, right? 75 days after she got the charge to handle the border crisis, don't come. So here's CNN asking a tougher question. Cut six. You said repeatedly in Guatemala that you wanted to provide a message of hope. Yeah. Uh, but you also came with a warning. You said, do not come. Uh, and you warned that uh, would-be migrants would be turned away at the border. Why, why did you feel it was important to relay that message while in Guatemala? Uh, and are you worried that it may have drowned out your message of hope? I know our capacity to give people hope in, in that region, in particular those three countries in Central America. And I have no question in my mind that the work that we have done, including the agreements that I've announced today, much less what will come of those agreements in terms of the work at head, ahead, is going to have a very positive impact. It may not be evidenced overnight, but it will have a positive impact. Another reason why you go to the border and the why she's detached and why the administration is so-called, quote-unquote, perplexed, this is you need an immediate, immediate fix and a long-term solution, not one without the other, because you got a problem. The Border Patrol is absolutely overwhelmed. What does she not get? Shelly Moore Capito, who we'll hear from shortly, cut eight. You know, the one thing that struck me is in her, her response when she says, well, she hadn't been to Europe yet and she hasn't been to the southern border. You know, we're talking about our own country here, our own southern border, uh, which is a tremendous security. I, I'm the um, appropriator, or I, I'm the uh, ranking member on appropriations for homeland security, uh, where we see 170,000 people. And they're not just coming from the Northern Triangle countries. They're coming from uh, Venezuela and, and Brazil and other parts of South America, Cuba. And, and, and so, you know, we've got a much bigger problem here than what the administration will admit to. And they don't admit to anything. And they have people on the front lines that don't talk to the press. Why is that okay? Is it okay to see four- and five-year-olds being dropped over a wall, walking by themselves in an open field? Look at the video. I mean, this is happening. And then you see this five-year-old girl just walking by herself in front with a phone number in her hand, and she gets scooped up, thankfully, by the Border Patrol, and not some crazy, if you know what I'm saying. One of those images would have just destroyed Trump. We would have to fire people. There would have been hearings. You got these heartbreaking images every day because they said, if you come, I'll reunite families. Those are the words from the president of Guatemala, migrant president. That's the assessment of the president, uh, the, Mex- uh, the Mexican president. And the vice president is not embracing any challenge. You're reminded why she didn't even last one caucus slash primary. She is an awful candidate who doesn't put the effort in to learn the issues. Infrastructure, major deal. I believe that Joe Manchin, if you want him to continue to stand strong on simple one-party rule and getting rid of the filibuster, Republicans have to sincerely negotiate. And that's what Senator Shelley Moore Capito was doing with the blessing of Mitch McConnell. But simultaneously, there's a bipartisan group getting together that seems to be offering more money and more enticing of a deal for the president if he's making the decisions himself. So here's her frustrated comments yesterday as she chronicles getting a call from the president. Cut 33. 
The president ended the talks today with me on a very cordial call. I am extremely disappointed because we offered the president basically what he asked us to do the first time we met with him, which was a trillion dollars over eight years, including baseline spending, and that it wouldn't include a tax increase. And uh, he, those were our, that was our red line, not his. And the last offer that I got from the president had four tax increases in it, and it also uh, was much closer uh, in in numbers than what the what the White House is putting out right now. So I'm disappointed with that. And you have to wonder, why would you cut it off? Well, what happened is he picked up the phone and he called uh, Mansion Cinema as well as uh, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy and said, I heard you're working on a pretty promising bill. I think I'll go with you guys. At which time we understand it's $900 billion. Uh, this is a group of about six Republicans and Democrats. The group are hoping to thresh out a deal on Biden's infrastructure plan. Uh, Biden originally wanted $2 trillion. Mitt Romney and said after the meeting they reached fully, uh, fairly good agreement on specific items, but were a little too— uh, uh, we're a little less solid on how to pay for them. But they do say forget this human infrastructure, school lunches, elder care, preschool, not on the cards. And that's what Joe Biden wants to deal with. Mitt Romney, Rob Portman, Bill Cassidy, and Murkowski, uh, Mansion Cinema, and Tester. And then you have a pledge of $587 billion for highways, $160 billion for transit, $24 billion for electric, $5 billion for asset recycling. You got $44 billion for airports, $10 billion for community restoration, veteran housing for 10 broadband for 45 This seems like legitimate infrastructure. Clean energy and, uh, and electric grid, $71 billion. My eyebrows are up. Water, wastewater, and, and Western storage. Resiliency and nature-based infrastructure. Don't know what that means. Freight, passenger rail, and Amtrak. So they think they got something going. Uh, the total bill, $959 billion. Uh, they add some, they get around the trillion. He sees more promise. But I'm wondering what Republicans are doing. Don't waste her time and have her show up there, negotiate, and then negotiate a different track, a different package parallel to her. Here's uh, what Senator Capito just said about an hour ago. Uh, cut 51. I'm not sure how many Republicans uh, will go with the problem solvers. We'll have to see how they work it out. Um, you know, I think all ideas are welcome. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm a bit disappointed and frustrated that the, that the White House really uh, kept moving the ball on me and then finally just brought me negotiations that were untenable and then ended the negotiations altogether. Yeah, and she went on. Cut 52. Do you feel that they... Um undermine you in the press by talking about the negotiations? Well, I think obviously when you have another object over there, another plan that is going to be more money, and they've already, they'd already said that, and they said that it included other things, obviously uh, the White House is going to look towards that. So I, I don't think it helped. She's very diplomatic. I'd be aggravated. You know, don't waste my time if you're going to undermine me with my own party. I'm not saying I, I'm for a deal. Just don't make her look – she's done a good, really good job. Don't embarrass her. And Republicans, if you're just going to sit on your hands and do a Mitch McConnell, I'm there to destroy your agenda, you are going to make Joe Biden break the filibuster. You're going to make Joe Biden vote for this – excuse me, Joe Manchin – vote for this infrastructure crap, uh, which includes stuff that we have no interest in, that AOC and Bernie Sanders want jammed down our throats. So negotiate for real. I'm not saying give up what you believe in. I'm saying infrastructure is something you supported under Trump. Don't back off now, and we need. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show, Martha McCallum in studio, and then we'll take some calls. Big hour. So glad you're here. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Martha McCallum's here. Her show is going to start at 3 o'clock, and I'll shut off all the TVs right now. Uh, she's the host of the story at three, but you see her all over the channel um, because uh, she doesn't say no. Everyone keeps asking you to host, <laughs> you keep saying yes. Uh, Martha, oh welcome gosh. back. I and don't in have studio. Else to do. <laughs> What's on your mind, Martha? You know, there's so much going on, Brian. I, I look across this trip that uh, that the president's about to embark on, you know, sort of headlong into discussions at the end of it with Vladimir Putin and what's being called a summit, which might be a pretty big word for this stage of the game. And and I, I'm so struck, too, by this, by the vice president's trip and all of the reporting that's coming out about, you know, the negative interpretation of, of the trip. One of the things I just read said even her plane didn't want her to go because uh, they <laughs> had plane true. trouble on the way there and the empty faces on the cookies and all of that. But, you know, it, it's there's so much vagueness. There's so much the, the language is so just rhetorical. Like, well, we're here to do big things and we have we were successful because we made progress and progress is is success. And, you know, it, there, there's nothing sort of substantial that you can dig your teeth into in terms of what they actually actually want to accomplish. It, it feels like as far as the border is concerned, they're hoping that, you know, obfuscation and lots of talks about about root causes will help to turn people's attention away from it. Maybe it'll get so hot that people will stop wanting to walk north. You know, I have not seen this storyline pursued. It's got to be us. And Brian Yenis had to leave and go to Mexico. And now he's back home. Mm-hmm. But why were people in Guatemala out there with negative signs about Kamala and pro Trump signs? Now, do you know the rhetoric leading up to the by the so-called political scientists was saying the tone is going to be reversed. Trump was full of retribution and condemnation. You better do this or you're going to lose your money as opposed to how can I help? Mm-hmm. So you would think yeah. that would be the opposite. Thank goodness Trump is gone. He was yelling at us and blaming us and telling us we can't come. But it's the opposite. And don't tell me that Steve Bannon's down there handing that oak tag. There's no way. <laughs> You know, they worked out deals um, and they did it fairly early on in the process. I mean, remember also that that there was a, a tough time for the Trump folks at the border. The separation of children was a story that was very pervasive and the message was not good. Uh, those children, by the way, many of them have not still been reunited with families. And President Trump was asked by you know, by the liberal side of the fence, why aren't you going to the border? You should go to the border and see what's going on there. So the same sort of dynamic was happening. But what they did was sort of go for tangible outcomes with all of these countries. So Bill Barr went down there. Um, Kirsten Nielsen went down there. They talked to Guatemala, Honduras. They talked to El Salvador. Uh, and they worked out deals, basically. And, and, you know, some of that is financial. Uh, some of it is, you know, things are going to disappear. There, there'll be, you know, trade issues. And tariffs all, in Mexico. Tariffs, all of it. Um, so they worked out a financial transaction. Like when, when you figure out what your goal is and what you want, you want to stop the flood of people to the border, you figure out ways to address some of those root causes. Now, that being said, there's, um, you know, obviously when you when you deal with these folks with money, a lot of that money disappears. You know, there's a ton of corruption in those. Days. But but I, I just find it so much more tangible. And maybe that's why in Guatemala even people sort of they, – they, they, I also think they liked the sort of straightforward, tough talk and appreciated that it was up front. You know, here's the deal. We right. want this to stop. We're going to figure out a way to, to make it stop. And let, let's have a negotiation. 
when she should when you know an issue, you don't really need to rehearse it. If I know this issue, like for example, you might not like what I say, but I'll be I'll be researched. Right. She did not research. She does not think to yourself, you know, how do we get deep into this? She's had 75 days to prepare for this trip. A couple of Zoom calls, no visits to the border. When she gets the assignment, well, she I'm has saying. two other assignments. HR1, she's got to sell it. She's also got to sell the vaccine. Yeah. She's, These not, are, she's just, not blowing anybody away on the substance of her understanding of what's going on there. And she keeps saying, well, you know, even, even when I was in California, you know, we dealt with these border issues all the time. But there's nothing specific in the answers. And one of the things that really stood out to me in the Lester Holt interview, he said, you know, you're saying don't come, but what makes you think think that that message will be listened to because what people might hear you say don't come but then they see their relatives getting in so why would they change their behavior based on what you're saying boy did she talk around that there was never an answer to that question and it's a great question right why would anyone change their behavior because you say don't come when the border is obviously despite what mayorka says open martha i've always come to the i thought listen you get this job only once maybe twice so if someone gives you an assignment whether it's hard or easy go do it you yeah. the best you can. Instead, she was afraid to lose. And her political handlers did not want her a part of this illegal immigration issue at the border, knowing that ICE has been disempowered and the wall has stopped. You know what they should have done? They should have gone to the border right away. Absolutely. Because, you know, I also remember during the during the campaign, she said, you know, oh, we're going to completely do away with uh, independent health insurance, right? And then she just keeps moving to the middle and changing what she's, what she's talking about. Just to do it. Go to the border. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Martha and I, uh, McCallum is here, and she's got her show coming up at 3 o'clock. We have so much to talk about, but I've been promising this story, and Eric reminded me I've not gotten to it yet. And there's no sound with this, Martha, so I'll just I'll let, let you, I'm going to introduce you to you, and you can decide what you do with it. I'm sure at some point, maybe, I'll be surprised if it lasts all the way up to Sean Hannity, but we'll see if anyone's <laughs> going to grab this today. Uh, Guardian writer Raj Patel said the classic American desert, uh, dessert was born of slavery and colonialism. Yup. What is worse than putting down the flag? Second worst, putting down apple pie. His article highlighted how apple trees had been brought to the West from Asia. He claims they were used as symbols of property by settlers who arrived in America and forced indigenous people off their lands. Patel also took aim at the sugar crust and even the gingham cloth an apple pie is traditionally cooled on. But his opinion piece, first published last month, has been widely panned. Are you for the banning of apple pie? Do you want to think about it? Do you think he brings up some good points? I mean, literally, like I said to you, this is like sometimes it's 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 almost it's comical, right? It's it's like if you wrote if you wrote a really dark comedy, you would say something like this about apple pie and it's and it's it's cruel roots, right? It's like a Borat movie. It's like when when is someone going to start laughing? Maybe he's joking. Maybe he's joking. I mean, it's it's absolutely mind boggling. It's in the Daily Mail. It didn't it, seem like a joke. It, yeah, I, I mean, there's so many th- issues that you could tackle in the world of things that people should feel wronged about or people should be inspired by to solve in terms of injustice. This is not one of them. This is absolutely it, like, yeah, I just think it seems like a dark comedy. All right, uh, true. More dark comedy, which I think is it's going to have a happier ending. 
I've seen teachers and parents rally together across this country because of the curriculum they're seeing their kids at all levels come home with and some of the statements they possibly made there, some complaining, some reflecting, some just studying. And because of the pandemic, I think my humble opinion is people are more involved in their kids' work. They're hearing it. They're overseeing it. And all of a sudden they're saying critical race theory, apologize for white supremacy, apologize for being white. Uh, You know, America is a racist country. Well, excuse me. We know about history. We know about our problems. But apologize because of the color of your skin. Before you comment, I want you to hear President Obama thinks this is just an issue to raise money off of. Listen to him dismiss it to Anderson Cooper, Cut 16. I also think that there are certain right-wing media venues, for example, that monetize and capitalize on stoking the fear and resentment of uh, a white population that is witnessing a changing America and seeing uh, demographic changes and, and do everything they can to give people a sense that um, uh, their way of life is threatened and that people are trying to take advantage of them. And we're okay. He is so over his skis here, and di- and and maybe intentionally misstating what this is all about. Do you think he doesn't quite understand it, or do you think that he is trying to marginalize it? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, my I guess my question would be if I were talking to him about this, you know, do you think it's helpful for young black students to be told that they are victims, that they're oppressed, that because of the history, generations before them, that they will always be in that category and that they should always view the white students who go to school next to them as descendants of oppressors, that that should color their opinion of them before they even get to know them. What happened to we're not a white America or a black America, we're the United States of America? Well, I don't know. It's what, not what here from 08. That? That, that, was the, that was such an amazing speech. It was a galvanizing speech. It was a beautiful speech. It's what put him on the map. But so much of the sentiment in that speech seemed to fall by the wayside over the course of the years. What an amazing thing it would be for for President Obama to stand up at this point and say, you know what, enough, enough. We're not victims and oppressors. We're the United States of America. We're not black. We're not white. We're the United States of America. What an amazing message that would be for him to revisit now. And he could do it. He could do it in a really powerful way to bring the country together. You would think, with all the public policy debates that are taking place right now, that you know the Republican Party would uh, be engaged in a significant debate about uh, how are we going to deal with the economy and what are we going to do about climate change and what are we going to do about lo and behold the the single most uh, important issue to them apparently right now is critical race theory who knew so what i don't get what does it mean who knew do you understand that if your kid comes home at 11 years old and said hey mom hey dad uh, I am uh, I am privileged and I'm an oppressor. That's going to be on my test tomorrow. Do you feel that way? That is not a minor issue. And there are cultural issues that we could bring up. You know, he wants to go and say, we're not taking the degree. Democrats aren't going to take your guns away. Okay, we've been back and forth on this a million times. That is not this issue. This issue is fundamental education. And you tell any parent, no matter how rich or poor, what's most important, they're always going to say their kids. He's missing this. He is wrong on this. Not only what he thinks, but the gravity of the issue. 
I, I think that's true. I, I think, first of all, you know, when you look at what Republicans or conservatives are concerned about right now, and he says they should fix the economy, I, I think Since that, when, when they have the power I, to do I mean, that. if you ask any, you look at any poll, you're going to see that jobs in the economy are number one on the, on the mind of Republicans and Democrats. And there are a lot of questions about what's going on in the jobs market and why we're still paying people to stay home all the way through September when we clearly have a really forcefully reviving economy. Um, I, I, you know, it's almost like, you know, when I listened to him speaking about this topic, about critical race theory, I mean, there have been other times when he sort of didn't understand that something was something bigger than it than it appeared to be. And, you know, these are two totally different topics. But I think about him talking about ISIS, you know, like it's not a big deal, right? It's just like everyone's all upset about JV ISIS. Team. They're the JV team, right? And, you know, again, totally different topics, but a similar tone in the way that he's approaching it. Like, you know, people shouldn't be so hung up on this. It's not a big deal. People want very much to have equality in this country. Equality has become um, a negative word. It's become something that we're not supposed right. to strive for. But people don't want to see color. They want people to be at the table at, together. At the same time, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth. There are sentiments, um, in, sentiments uh, signing them to you that you don't believe. There are situations right now that are cyclical that we got to help the inner cities move forward, give them a sense of hope where the families are fractured. You can't give up on that generation. See how we can help. But you want you want me to help or do you want to make me the enemy? You're going to make me the enemy. I'm not helping, right? And don't say we're afraid. I think I speak for you when I say I am not afraid of whites being majority or minority. It doesn't bother me. I think this thing is we're American. That's what bothers me. China and Russia bother me. Uh, Hispanic, blacks, and Asians don't bother me. I looked at them as Americans. They are making us look at them as black, white, uh, male or female, gay or straight, or trans. Well, since when am I have to categorize people? Condoleezza Rice was such a counterweight to this. You know how she grew up. You know she segregated South. She said eight years. I was uh, eight years old before I was allowed to go to a movie theater or out to eat. I was twelve before I had a white classmate. Do you think you have to tell her about racism in America? Nor do you have to tell her about progress in America. She's asked about structural racism. They're trying to get a soundbite out of her. Listen to her response. Cut twenty-one. Your point about structural racism is not that it doesn't exist, but that the term itself doesn't get you as far as you would like. Well, I just, John, I've, I've ceased to, to use it because I don't know what it means anymore. And I think it's become a barrier uh, to do. I think that there are impacts of race uh, that are clear in uh, American life. Absolutely. But, you know, the other problem with it is it sounds so big and impenetrable as if we have to jettison the system somehow. And with all of its problems, having been all over the world and having seen how people deal with difference, I will tell you that America deals with difference better than any country I've ever visited. Mm -hmm. Right? You know it's true. <laughs> I mean, we all know that's true. And if you've traveled around the world, you know that that's true. And so we need to have leadership that wants us to celebrate what unites us, what unites us. And that is what President Biden said he would do. We haven't seen it yet. Not um, close. We haven't what about seen that it. Tulsa speech? Are you kidding? Yeah. What about not mentioning... D-Day. How do you not I do mean, that? I mean, D-Day is a great opportunity to talk about what America is all about. And it, it was, you know, it was lost, lost opportunity. You know what you say when you, when you forget D-Day? You know, that is, I feel terrible about that. We're still getting our sea legs over here in our communications department. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen again. I, sh I, I expect more of myself. Bill, I understand. I forget birthdays all the time. People close to me, I'm like, oh, my goodness, it's 12 o'clock. I haven't said happy birthday yet. So even though he's got all this experience and all these experienced people with him, we dropped the ball on that. 
We understand that. You make a mistake. But don't say, well, he mentioned it in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. What an insult that is. Or it's in his heart all the time. What does that mean? We know that's BS. We've all mm-hmm. been down that road. One last uh, cut from Condoleezza Rice. Uh, I thought that was strong, but I think this might be stronger. Uh, cut 20. I want kids to know about Tulsa. I also want them to know what that black community did to overcome that horrible massacre. I want them to know about 63 in Birmingham, but I want them to know that the mayor of Birmingham today is a black man who grew up in a poor community. So I want them to see the forward progress of America as well on these issues. And I want us as a country to do it together because uh, I don't want this to be black against white, my weaponization of my identity against yours. This is, this is the, uh, the word, the weaponization of, of an identity. identity so, you, okay, I'm the problem, and you want me to fix it? Yeah. Sorry, game over, no, she and it's your game. Beautifully. I mean, we, we need that kind of leadership. We need that message across the country. And you know what? There would be such a strong response to it from all Absolutely. sides. People are not happy being this divided. You have these fringe elements on both sides that make it just appear that, you know, that that we're so divided. I don't believe we are as divided. I think people would love right. to rise to a message like that. Yeah, it's they want to make it the proud boys against BLM. Yeah, come don't on. think so. All right? Uh, we're going to come back and find out if uh, Martha needs to know more. Also, Martha, this would be a great your book, or your perfect Father's Day book. Mm. How do we get it? You can get it on Amazon.com. You can get it anywhere that you buy books on Known Valor. Uh, it's a story of Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima, the story of family and courage and of sacrifice. And I, I think you're right. I think it's a great Father's Day gift. Thank you for bringing it Is up. Is there a way to sign it for you to sign it? Yeah, or? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Go to your house? You can <laughs> <laughs> Just go to your house. If you see Martha Honestly, at Kmart. people send me their books and I've signed them and sent oh. them back to them. So I just thought you might have had a setup that. that you were forgetting about, but you don't. I know. I have to get my act together like this This wonderful right. spread here. Exactly. <laughs> BrianKillMe.com uh, if you want any Can of my books. Can I get books. a signed book of yours? If you Father's act Day? now. If you act okay, now. Okay, please stay tuned for details. Exactly. BrianKillMe.com and you can get Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers uh, for Father's Day and all, basically all of them. Martha will find out and will preview her show exclusively here in just a moment. Don't move. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. We got a few minutes with Martha McCallum, and I want to get her exclusive out right away. Martha, can you give me an idea of what we can expect? On your show at 3. Well, we've got a great lineup. We're going to talk to Tom Cotton. We're going to talk to Lindsey Graham. Uh, Also, Rand Paul on this vaccine story that I'm really interested in, this new Cleveland uh, clinic study that basically says that if you have had COVID, um, you don't improve your health situation by having a vaccine. So that... This is it's just something that I'm fascinated by and I want to dig more into. So we'll talk to Rand Paul about that. And uh, President Biden's going to be landing in the U.K. at 3 o'clock at the top of the hour. So Peter Ducey's there, and we'll go live to him as we begin this foreign trip for the president. This vaccine thing, I kind of glanced over it because I said, oh, I kind of know that, but it was never factored in. It was never factored in because you don't have any antibody test that's easy to get. So, okay, I had it. Do I still have the antibodies? I've heard different things. I, people in my family have had it, and the antibodies were only there for three months. Other people— You know people who got tested positive for antibodies, and now they don't have them anymore? They don't have them anymore. With I've any, never heard of that happening. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, it happens a lot. 
Um, I haven't. I've not seen anyone get tested for antibodies and then lose them. Oh, I could so show I you. Think that's unusual. I could show you the results. Uh, number one. Number two is if you if you're going to have the natural immunity, they call it natural. That should be factored in. Most scientists do it. So I guess they want to make it simple. Get everyone get a vaccine because we don't want to have an antibody test and another vaccine. Or does Fauci not agree with that, that you have the antibody? He always says, talks vaguely about it. So what's changed? Well, the Cleveland study was over 5,000 people. And they showed that if they had the, after they'd had COVID, whether they had the vaccine or didn't have the vaccine, they had the same amount of protection against the virus. So- you know, and it raises questions about whether or not people need to, whether or not they should wait until their antibodies are waning. And, you know, I, I think it's pretty rare, actually. I think that what we've seen is that the antibodies have lasted pretty much as long as the course of the virus so far. In the beginning, they said, oh, maybe three or four months, but we were only three or four months into the into the virus. Now I see people whose antibodies have lasted a year, over a year in some cases. So, uh, you know, we should have either an antibody card or a COVID card, and that should be able to, that, that should be good for getting you into something. With Canada still shut down, with Mexico still a mess, with Africa only 1% vaccinated in Japan, the numbers are going up again. They only have 7% vaccinated. Shouldn't we be – and we're making people – we're giving people pot to get vaccines. Give them away then. Insane. I'm not going to force people to get vaccinated, all right? Make your own decision. Let's find out if there's even more to know. More to know. So this is on the same vein. In Oklahoma, they have expiring Johnson & Johnson. They have about 80,000 Johnson & Johnson do- doses set to expire by the end of June. And they only got like 4,000 people a day getting the shot. Only about 30-plus percent want it. Oklahoma, obviously, we have KRMG and another great station, Oklahoma City, who are affiliates. You don't want them. All right, you make your own decision, right? It's not up to me or you. They're, they put their own health at risk. So what do you think we should do with these? I think we should ship them out to places that need the vaccine, and we can make more. And when those, if those people decide that they want to have it, then it'll be ready by then. But so, I, I don't think you want any vaccines expiring in a global situation. I know I could do this on every story, but can you imagine if Donald Trump was holding on to vaccines that were going to expire mm-hmm. instead of helping the next of the world? He doesn't like other countries. America first is giving us a bad reputation. My goodness. You know what I would have used? I would say, hey, Guatemala, you want some vaccine? Yeah, exactly. Hold I was on thinking to the same people. thing. And people oh, don't do that on a vaccine. No, yeah. no. In Mexico, you want to? Absolutely. You, you, give me 25,000 Marines on your southern border, and I'm going to give you a million shots. I agree. All right. You and I can survive in a tough neighborhood. Uh, get this. Bachelorette premiere ratings have dropped for the last two seasons. What has happened? Chris Harrison is out now out permanently because he wants to defend a contestant who went to a party years before they actually had this show. The worst example, one of the worst examples of cancel culture, don't yeah. you think? No, I agree. I, I think that, you know, uh, c- canceling Chris Harrison was obviously not a good idea for The Bachelor. We need to find more opening di- opening for, like, normal dialogue, right? Or for someone to say something and say, well, maybe that was misinterpreted. Let me apologize or let me say it differently. That should be enough. We, we, we've we lost the ability to forgive people or to have uh, allow people to, um, you know, admit a mistake or you know, amend what they said to make amends. Everything is either, you know, you're canceled or you're not. It, it, it really is. We're biting off our nose to spite our face. And it's not just famous people, by the way. Next, National Geographic did something I was trying to do. They found a fifth ocean. Uh, it turns out all the time. Uh, the South ocean, the ocean has, Southern Ocean has long been recognized by scientists, but 
because there was never an agreement internationally, we never officially recognized it. Uh, it's sort of a geographic nerdiness. We've also labeled it, but we've labeled it slightly different. Uh, so the National Geographic cartographers have listed four oceans on Earth since 1915, but now we have to name another. Uh, so I guess it's going to be called the Southern Ocean. And I guess it's in the south. <laughs> I was going to say, can you explain to me exactly where it is? Right. I hope it's deep. <laughs> you know, and I hope I can go there. And it connects to another ocean, obviously. So because, why does yeah. it now have its own name? I'm, I'm going to go over to you in the break because the music's got to get louder. <laughs> and it's going to cut us off. Hey, go get Martha's book. Uh, for Father's Day, you Unknown can't Valor. get it signed. Unknown Valor. Yes, you can get it signed. Eventually. Act now. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.